Hi everyone, I'm your host Alex and welcome back to Narcosis Into the Deep. This week is part two of Shadow Divers. If you didn't listen to part one yet, make sure you go back and listen to that episode first. And as a reminder, majority of the information for these episodes comes from Robert Curson's book titled Shadow Divers, the true adventure of two Americans who risked everything to solve one of the last mysteries of World War II. I've linked the book in the episode's description, and I highly recommend that you purchase and read it. It goes into greater detail than these podcast episodes do, and it was one of, if not the best, nonfiction book that I've ever read. Alright, let's go ahead and dive into today's episode. Last week on Shadow Divers, we discussed how the unidentified German U-boat was discovered, who dove it, the loss of Steve Feldman, and finally, the press release that the team decided to put out to the world when each of the history books that they read left them at a dead end. After the press release, dozens of calls and letters came in from family members, fanatics, and even conspiracy theorists. But one day, John Chatterton received a letter from Dieter Leonhard, a captain in the German Navy and a German embassy in Washington, D.C. Finally, John thought, Leonard might have the connections he needed in order to uncover the identity of this submarine. But Leonard's letter explicitly stated, quote, The Federal Republic of Germany retains ownership of the submarines regardless whether the present position of the wreck is within national territorial waters or not. Sunken German warships are principally defined to be quote-unquote tombs of a seaman's grave. Diving and exploring the wreck is therefore not permitted without government approval, which has been denied in each case to date. To keep a wreck a tomb, the FRG prohibits any violation to a World War II sub and will enforce this condition through legal means." End quote. Although somewhat discouraging, John Chatterton decided to call Leonhard anyway. Once finally put through to him, John asked, Do you know the identity of this wreck? To this, Leonhard replied that the German government often relies on a man named Horst Bredo at the U-boat archive in Germany. After giving John Horst's contact information, Leonhard reiterated the statement provided in his letter. John asked again, Which U-boat is it? The one you found. Yes, but what is the specific U-boat designation? I do not know, Leonhard said. What is the exact location? I do not know that either. John finally said, I'm going to be honest with you. I want to be respectful. You don't know what wreck this is, and therefore you can't lay claim to it. My goal is to identify the wreck to put a name on a tombstone. I'm going to continue diving it until that happens. Leonhard replied that the German government did not want the graves of the seamen to be disturbed or scattered or for the wreck to be desecrated. And John told him, I understand that, and I don't intend to allow that to happen. It's my first priority to be considerate and respectful. You have my word. After his call with Leonhard ended, John made plans to get in contact with Horst Bedro. But before that happened, another man reached out to him. Although not named in Robert Curson's book, this man tells John a compelling story. He worked in a blimp during World War II. You know, like those giant Goodyear blimps that float around at stadiums during games? 
Well, it turns out, and I didn't know this prior to reading the book, that blimps were actually used in World War II to fight German submarines. Their mere presence helped keep submarines submerged and they assisted in escorting ships along the eastern seaboard. At one point during World War II, more than 1,500 pilots had manned blimps considerably larger than those used for advertising today. According to this unnamed man, he sunk a U-boat in about the same area they identified the sunken sub. The man was based out of Lakehurst, New Jersey, and attacked the submarine with a depth charge. John thanked him for this information and wrote it down. It was one more possibility that they could add to their list. Around the same time, John also took a day to drive to the Naval Weapons Station Earl in Mammoth County, New Jersey, to have his wreck footage examined by experts in weapons, ordnance, and demolition. After reviewing the tapes and discussing the physical terms, the experts came to the following conclusion. The damage was likely caused by a force far greater than a depth charge, the weapon so often used by Allied forces against U-boats. But what could this weapon be? According to these experts, they suspect that the submarine had been hit with a direct torpedo charge. But how is this possible? If the submarine had been hit with a direct torpedo hit, there would definitely be a record of this attack somewhere, anywhere, in the attack reports, history books, something. But everything that they had read up until this point proved that there had been no attacks within at least 100 miles or 161 kilometers. Could it be that it was hit accidentally by another German U-boat? Surely the Germans would have recorded it. It has happened before. German U-boats sometimes hunted in wolf packs, but there was simply no record of any German U-boat wolf packs in this area. What happened to this mysterious German U-boat? John had collected a ton of great information not even a week after the article was released in the Star-Ledger but the best one was yet to come. Bill Nagel, the captain of the Seeker, was contacted by Major Gregory Wiedenfeld, a Civil Air Patrol historian. The Civil Air Patrol, or CAP for short, was a group of civilian pilots organized in 1941 by New York's mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, to fly small, privately owned airplanes to help defend coastal shipping. Average Americans would fly the New York and New Jersey coastal hunting U-boats with mini-bombs jury-rigged under their wings. Because this was obviously not a safe way to land, the CAP was instructed to drop the bombs whether or not they saw any U-boats prior to coming back to land. Over the course of the war, the CAP had detected more than 150 subs and dropped depth charges on several of them. According to Major Wiedenfield, the CAP sunk two U-boats that they never got credit for. At the time, the Navy tried to keep the CAP hush-hush because they didn't want to terrify Americans. The public would have gone insane if they had known that average Americans were needed to fight U-boats in American waters. Major Wiedenfeld told Bill and the group that the two subs that they never got credit for was for one off of the coast of Florida and the other off of New Jersey. He believes that the mysterious U-boat was sunk by the CAP. He says, quote, On July 11, 1942, two of our pilots in a Grumman Wigian spotted a U-boat about 40 miles, 64 kilometers, off of the coast just north of Atlantic City. 
The guys chased the U-boat for four hours until it began to rise to periscope depth. When it finally surfaced, they dropped a 325-pound depth charge and the bomb exploded. They could see an oil slick streaking the surface where the sub had been. They dropped another depth charge right into the oil slick. It was a kill, absolutely. The pilots are both dead now, but I've been working for years to get my guys credit for this. I think you found their U-boat. End quote. This location turned out to be only 25 miles, or 40 kilometers, from the wreck site. John and the others were so excited, they felt like they were getting closer to finding out the sub's history. If John could get his hands on a list of U-boats sunk in July 1942, even if they were some miles away, he might have found the U-boat's identity. At around the same time, letters started coming in from Carl Frederick Martin, the eighth most successful U-boat ace of World War II. In these letters, Carl Frederick told John that he was eventually promoted to a land-based position along with his colleague Hans Weingartner. However, Weingartner still craved war and blood and transferred back to being inside a U-boat. His first assignment was on the U-851 and was to travel to the Indian Ocean and deliver goods to the Japanese Navy, but Carl Frederick suspected that this mission was too tamed for the war-crazed Weingartner. Carl Frederick suspected that Weingartner had headed towards the action in New York, not towards the Indian Ocean. As with all information that John collected, he kept notes on these stories as possible sub-identities and thanked the man for this valuable information. The next trip out to the sunken submarine was on November 6, 1991. While sitting on the seeker on their way out to the sub, the crew rehearsed their dive. John would dive first, set the line, and then the others could begin their dive after. Richie Kohler wasn't too happy with this. To him, John got to dive first every single time. And it was because that John got to go first that he was able to find the dishes. Richie knew that if he went into that submarine after John, the silt would be kicked up and visibility would be poor. He wanted to dive first to get that crystal clear view on the inside. It would be after this dive that John would approach Richie and from here on out, John and Richie would enter the waters together but work in different parts of the sub during their dives. But on this trip, on November 6, 1991, Bill Nagel called the shots and John Chatterton would enter the waters first. His first mission was to determine which type of U-boat this was. Was it a Type 7, the most common German U-boat? These ones had externally affixed compartments used for fuel, so it'd be easy to identify those. Or was it maybe a Type 9 model that had more than one stern torpedo tube, unlike the Type 7, which only had one? After John set the line, he began recording his dive and swam the outside of the submarine. No saddle tanks. Okay, that meant that it wasn't a Type 7. But unfortunately, John didn't have enough time or air to check for the stern torpedo tubes. However, Richie did. On this trip, Richie detected the outline of two adjacent torpedo tubes and at once he understood the implication of this discovery. This was likely a Type 9 U-boat, the kind built for patrols of long range and duration. After returning to the Seeker, John and Richie sat down inside the wheelhouse and began watching and re-watching John's recorded dive. They needed three hours to off-gas before they could return to the wreck, and they would use this time to study. On their second dive of the day, Richie Kohler found a cologne bottle, and John Chatterton found a silverware box. 
Richie's cologne bottle held no information, but John's silverware box, however, contained the most valuable information they had found so far. A knife with the name Horenberg carved into the wooden handle. To this, everyone cheered. You did it! You identified the sub! They knew that this name could trace back to a crewman, and from there, they'd be able to identify which U-boat he had been assigned to prior to his untimely death. After returning home, John sent out letters to everyone that he had been in contact with to identify who Horenberg was and which sub he was assigned to. But almost two months went by before John got a call. The man on the line told John that the knife was a dead end. He told John that there was only one Horenberg and that he never served in the Western Atlantic and that Horenberg didn't recall which U-boats he served on. The man told John that Hornberg was alive and didn't wish to speak to anyone. No amount of arguing changed this, and the man eventually hung up. After the caller hung up, John sat there holding the phone to his ear. A knife with a crewman's name. The best artifact he had ever found. And it was a dead end? A few more days passed, and John began receiving letters in the mail. These letters contradicted what the man on the phone said, but at the same time provided more damning evidence of a dead end. Three individual people that John had reached out to came to the same conclusion. Hornberg was a senior Funkmeister, or radio man, in the U-boat service. His last patrol was on the U-869, which was sunk by Allied forces off of the coast of Africa in 1945. And John believed these men to be right, since they were all respected experts. But John thought, maybe, just maybe, there was another Hornberg that had served. He recalled hearing about a U-boat memorial in Germany with all the crewmen's names carved into it. Instantly, he began making arrangements for this trip. He even invited Richie Kohler to join him on this trip. The man he had once regarded as an enemy had dedicated just as much time and energy as John into researching, and, since they were becoming closer, John knew Richie would want to be on this trip. Unfortunately, Richie owned his own company and wasn't able to take time off to attend. Eventually, John would fly out there to discover that Martin Hornberg, the man who, according to John's sources, had died off the coast of Africa in 1945, was the only Hornberg to serve in the U-boat services. It was possible that someone had stolen the knife at a port, or maybe his belongings got mixed up with different U-boats, but for now, it appeared as though the knife was indeed a dead end. But while waiting for his flight to Germany, another man, Gordon Vaith, reached out to John. Gordon was a former intelligence officer of the Atlantic Fleet airships during World War II and had connections to the Naval Historic Center. He invited John up to Washington, D.C., where he would then meet with two additional men, Bernard Cavalcante, the head of operational archives and a world-renowned U-boat expert, and Dr. Dean Allard, the director of the center. John believed he was within minutes of discovering the mystery wreck's identity. John shared his story with these men about finding the wreck and the research they'd completed so far. But Bernard told John, quote, We are the United States Navy, sir. We know a good bit about what lies in the ocean, but we cannot necessarily reveal that information. 
We have an accounting of shipwrecks off of the East Coast. We track this for military reasons, not for historical reasons, not for researchers, or, if you'll excuse me, divers. We have this list here, but I cannot show it to you. I'm sorry. End quote. John was crushed. The identity of this U-boat was just on the other side of this room, inside Bernard's desk, but he wasn't allowed to see it. But he had an idea. John told him, I don't have to see the list. I'm just interested in this particular wreck at this particular location. This has become very important to me. Putting a name on this grave is the right thing to do for the families, and it's the right thing to do for history. There are dozens of dead soldiers down there, and no one seems to know who they are or why they are there. Bernard thought for a bit and then eventually decided that he would make this exception. He gathered the list and asked John, Are you sure about this location? John confirmed that the location was precise, but according to even the United States Navy data, there was not a wreck or report of an attack at or near this location. They had indeed stumbled into a true mystery. From there, John was granted access to their archives of declassified reports. There were four critical researching tools available to him, and those were 1. The Anti-Submarine Warfare Incident Reports, or ASWs. 2. The Eastern Sea Frontier War Diaries, or ESFWD. 3. The BDU-KTBs and four individual U-boat files. Each of these reports and archives contained various information. Daily chronology of underwater contact between Allied forces and enemy vessels, interesting activity observed by Allied forces, daily summaries written by German U-boat control detailing U-boat activity around the world, and dossiers of U.S. Navy compiled information on specific U-boats. After two full days of looking through each different kind of report, John walked away without a single piece of new information. During the war, not a single incident, not a washed-up life jacket, the body of a sailor, an oil slick, or even a puff of smoke, had occurred anywhere near the wreck site. It was as if that section of the ocean where several dozen crewmen lay dead in this mysterious U-boat had vanished from existence during the war. John left Washington, D.C. empty-handed. Once in Germany, he couldn't find another Hornberg listed under the memorial of U-boat servicemen. Just another dead end. John would eventually return back to D.C. and continue looking through the archives there. And this time, he would find some compelling evidence. U-157 and U-158 were both U-boats that were hunting in American waters. But the reports seemed pretty ironclad. U-157 had been sunk northeast of Havana on June 13, 1942, nearly 2,000 miles or 3,218 kilometers from the wreck site, and there were multiple witnesses of the attack. U-158 was more interesting. It was spotted off of Bermuda, where an American amphibious airplane dropped depth charges on it. Since no debris was spotted or recovered, it's possible that the submarine might have dodged the attack or was only injured and had escaped with her life. The group had two favorites, the U-158, which may have only been injured off of Bermuda, 
and U-851, the U-boat belonging to Weingartner. They kept this possibility in rotation even though it was highly unlikely that a commander would disobey orders and head to New York when he was told to head to the Indian Ocean. But because there was no evidence yet of where U-851 was, they decided to hold on to the idea. U-158 was built with a deck gun, but not all Type 9s were. U-851 was a Type 9D and was about 30 feet or 9.1 meters longer than the typical Type 9s. Next time they hit the waters, they would check the length and also check for the presence of a deck gun. They were bound to rule out at least one of them. Over the 1992 dive season, lots of progress was being made. John Chatterton had made the switch to Trimix, a special type of gas mixture that reduces the effects of nitrogen narcosis and provides a clearer mind and sharper motor coordination while deep diving. Since it was still a very new concept at the time, he had spent months in his garage learning how to mix his own air. It was a pretty dangerous process. John would stand outside his garage and reach in with his left hand, not his right hand since he was right-handed, through a window to turn the valves while he looked away, just in case something exploded. But out in the waters, measuring the submarine turned out that it was pretty short, so they crossed out the potential for it being the U-851. They were also unable to locate a deck gun, which also crossed out the possibility of it being the U-158. They were back to square one. Again. On their fourth and final dive trip of the season, early October 1992, they had perfect weather. But once again, the submarine did not give them any valuable information. They slept on board the Seeker, and the next morning, the weather had worsened. Most divers decided they didn't want to risk diving the submarine in such bad conditions, but a father-son duo team decided to go anyway. Since the father-son duo hadn't been able to afford the expensive Trimix gas for this trip, they'd have to dive the wreck with normal compressed air. Chris, the father, would wait outside the submarine while his son, Chrissy, ran a line inside to try to retrieve an artifact that they had found the day before. For about 15 minutes, Chrissy burrowed his hands trying to loosen an artifact with German writing on it. He was sure that this piece of information could help uncover the boat's identity. But eventually, the pulling and tugging ended up loosening not the canvas that he was pulling at, but a steel cabinet that came crashing down on him. Outside the submarine, unaware of what was going on inside, Chris noticed that his son was overdue. Unfamiliar with the wreck, he decided to go inside and look for his son. It took some time, but Chris was able to free Chrissy from under this cabinet. But at this point, Chrissy was burning through his air and his narcosis was beating harder than ever. Chrissy checked his watch. They'd been down there for 30 minutes, 10 minutes over their planned time. Chrissy's line had become tangled inside the wreck, but they were able to eventually make it out of the submarine, and at this point, their extra air tanks were only 40 feet or 12 meters away at the aft section of the submarine. But in the chaos, Chrissy had become disoriented and swam the opposite direction, away from their extra tanks. And his father followed, unaware of the mistake. 
They spent another few minutes searching for their tanks, their air running even lower. Chris was becoming worried. His head wasn't clear due to the nitrogen narcosis, and he was terrified of running out of air and becoming lost on the wreck. Chrissy made a decision that every diver dreaded. He bolted to the surface, completely passing his decompression stops, and his father followed him. Bill Nagel, the captain of the Seeker, has a saying for divers who do this. They're dead, they just don't know it yet. Inside the Seeker, John Chatterton saw Chrissy break the surface, one hour ahead of schedule. Oh Christ, this ain't good. He shot the international signal for, are you okay, to Chrissy and his father who had also just breached the surface. But neither responded. Both divers had wide, rapidly blinking eyes. Did you complete your decompression? John yelled, but neither answered. As they swam to the boat, John yelled again, Chrissy, did you complete your decompression? No. Did you come straight to the surface? Yes. Richie went white at the answer. Danny Crowell ran to the wheelhouse and grabbed the radio, repeatedly calling the Coast Guard. When no answer came, he decided to call Mayday. Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. This is the vessel Seeker, requesting immediate helicopter evacuation. We have injured divers. Please acknowledge. Finally, he got a response and a chopper was en route. Chrissy was the first one to be pulled onto the boat. Now, I'm not going to repeat exactly what he yells during this time period because it contains some expletives. But as Chrissy was pulled onto the boat, John yelled to get him to the dressing table. They needed to get his gear off of him. Chrissy yelled, I effed up, I effed up, I can't move my legs, I can't breathe, I'm burning, a monster pinned me, I was trapped. Chrissy thrashed and tried to rip off his oxygen mask. In the pounding of narcosis underwater, he couldn't identify the cabinet for what it was. To him, it had been some unknown monster, and this is what he was referring to in this moment. John turned around to focus on getting the father, Chris, on board. From the water, Chris looked into John's eyes. I'm not going to make it, he said. Tell Sue I'm sorry. At this moment, Chris's head went limp. Richie, dressed only in street clothes, jumped into the freezing waters to get Chris and pull him on board. John started cutting off his gear and then began CPR. With each compression, he felt increasing resistance as Chris's blood was turning into foam and clotting inside his body. Chris's skin turned from white to blue to coal gray. John knew that he was dead, but he didn't dare stop compressions until the Coast Guard arrived. Back at the dressing table, Chrissy came to reality for just a few moments. My father! How's my father? Richie replied, John's with your father. He, he's on oxygen. He's gonna be fine. Hang in, Chrissy. Can you tell me what happened? I was in the wreck and... F this! I'm cold! I'm hot! I can't feel my legs! Please shoot me! It hurts so bad! Someone, please find a gun and shoot me! Please kill me! Dad! Dad! I 
I can't tell you guys how many times I had to stop reading that. I... I can't imagine... I can't imagine how scared he was. And how much pain he was in. For the next 90 minutes, John continued CPR on Chris's lifeless body. When the Coast Guard finally arrived, John tried multiple times to persuade them to leave Chris and get Chrissy to a decompression chamber, but they refused to leave Chris. Later, they found out that Chrissy died while inside a decompression chamber. God. Later, they found out that Chrissy died while inside the decompression chamber at Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx. John was devastated. In 36 years, there had been several thousand divers on the Andrea Doria, which was another wreck the seeker often frequented, but only six deaths. This mysterious U-boat had taken three lives in just a single year. Even worse, the canvas artifact that Chrissy had worked so hard to pull from the submarine had just been a life raft with generic instructions for use written in German. At least one good thing happened on this dive. They found an artifact that had a construction yard name imprinted into it. And back to researching, they found a list of 52 Type 9C U-boats that were constructed at this yard. Of the 52 on the list, 22 had survivors and 10 more had been built with a deck gun. That left just 20 possible submarines. They felt as though in this list, they held the U-boat's identification. Back in Washington, D.C., archives showed that 18 of the 20 submarines had been operating so far from New Jersey that it was unworthy to look into them further. That left just the U-857 and the U-879. While looking into these two submarines further, they saw that they had been docked in Norway in 1945 near U-869, Horenberg's U-boat. That would explain the knife, they thought. However, according to these texts, both of these U-boats had ample evidence that they were sunk far away from the Mystery Rex location. When reviewing the attack report for the U-857, it was said that, quote, on April 5, 1945, U-857 fired a torpedo at an American tanker, Atlantic States, wounding but not sinking her. Two days later, a warship, the destroyer USS Gustafsson, obtained a sonar contact with an underwater object near Boston. It fired several hedgehog bombs into the ocean towards the contact. Crewmen reported hearing an explosion shortly after and then smelling oil, end quote. According to the attack report, it was initially graded an E, probably slightly damaged. But after the war, the attack report was upgraded to a B, probably sunk. Looking into this further, John and Ritchie found out that post-war assessors reviewed reports and determined the final fate of all U-boats. It was important to make sure that they were all accounted for. And in doing so, they deliberately changed the initial data without much research into what happened. Then, historians come through, copy this data, presuming it to be correct, and then authors copy those historians, and so on and so forth. John told Ritchie, That must have been what happened here. The Gustafsson never sank the U-857. 
The U-boat survived the hedgehog attack, continued past Boston, then sank somewhere else. After the war, the assessors needed an explanation for the loss of U-857. So they looked at this really dubious attack by the Gustafsson and said, let's upgrade it from an E to a B. They didn't care that the original Navy assessors knew that the Gustafsson hadn't sunk a submarine. They just wanted the U-857 accounted for so they could move on with their business. As John and Richie left Washington that night, they celebrated. Their original research had virtually proved that this was U-857. All they needed to do was pull proof from the submarine. While waiting for the diving season to begin, they contacted all of the friends that they had made so far and made their case for the U-857. All of the experts agreed with their findings. It most likely was the U-857. But one other question laid unanswered. What happened to it? All evidence pointed at a large explosion coming from a torpedo hit. But if Allied forces had launched a torpedo, there would be data closer to the wreck site, not 200 miles north where the report's currently listed at. Then it came to them. During their research, they had read about circle runners, torpedoes whose steering malfunctioned, and instead of going towards and striking an enemy, the torpedo turned around and hit its origin submarine. It happened a few times during World War II, and that would explain why there was no attack report for this area. In the first season's dive in 1993, the team successfully recovered a leather boot, a flare, and a crewman's escape lung, complete with small oxygen tank, breathing apparatus, and a vest. John took these items home and placed them in his garage. But one morning as he entered his garage, it was like a bomb had exploded. All of his artifacts, including some from the Andrea Doria and the Nazi dishes that he pulled from the Yoo-Hoo, which was the nickname they gave the mysterious sub, had been destroyed. The air tank that they pulled from the Yoo-Hoo had exploded. He felt lucky that this ticking time bomb hadn't exploded on the seeker or while he was underwater with it, but he felt even luckier because that explosion left a clue. The air tank had a date on it, 15.4.44. It was the tank's hydrostatic test date, meaning that this submarine left port some point after April 15, 1994. But as the 1993 dive season came to a close, nothing else they pulled from the wreck site had any identifying information on it. John and Richie were becoming frustrated. It seemed as though this wreck was wanting to take even more lives, because in October 1993, Bill Nagel died at the age of 44. He'd been known to be an alcoholic, and the deaths of Steve Feldman and Chris and Chrissy Roos had eaten away at his consciousness, leading him to drink himself into an early grave. John Chatterton refused to attend his funeral. He said that that man wasn't the Bill that he knew. But Richie Kohler attended and was even one of Bill's pallbearers. Around Christmas in 1993, Richie and his wife Felicia separated. The U-boat consumed all of Richie's free time, and after two years of continuous research, Felicia left him. In February 1994, John Chatterton received a letter from Robert Kopak at the Mystery of Defense. It said, quote, 
U-869 was originally bound for the U.S. East Coast and allocated a patrol area. About 110 miles southeast of New York, U-869 may not have received a new signal ordering her to Gibraltar. In view of atmospheric conditions, it is certainly possible that Control's new signal ordering U-869 to Gibraltar area was not received by the boat. In view of atmospheric conditions, it is certainly possible that Control's new signal ordering U-869 to the Gibraltar area was not received by the boat. In the light, therefore, of the absence of any tangible proof that U-869 had received Control's signal ordering her to the Gibraltar area, along with the evidence of the knife and the proximity of the wreck's position to U-869 original patrol area, I would concede that the possibility the wreck is U-869 cannot be ignored." End quote. John went numb. U-869 was Hornberg's U-boat. He rushed to call Richie. The very next day, John went to Washington, D.C. and began looking through the U.S. Navy's intelligence archives. In there, he found a codebreaker's report that essentially matched the letter that he received in the mail. But the problem still stood that the U-869 was reported sunk off the coast of Gibraltar on February 28, 1945. But sure enough, looking at the report, John could see that the post-war assessors had upgraded it from a G to an E, probably sunk. The post-war assessors hadn't known the orders to Gibraltar hadn't been received, and when U-869 hadn't come home, they assumed that she was lost off of Gibraltar. They didn't. They found U-869. Horenberg was there the entire time. Although they believed the mystery to be solved, they hadn't given up yet. The wreck hadn't given them any evidence except the knife, and they needed more concrete proof that this was U-869. They were making history, and they had seen during their research time and time again how easily mistakes were made and how often experts were wrong. They refused to close the book on this wreck without finalizing their data. But as the 1994 dive season rolled around, John found himself lost. Every accessible part of the sub had been searched, and they hadn't found anything. On top of that, Richie was missing his family and would do anything to have them back. Richie's wife, Felicia, had given him an ultimatum. It's either her and the kids, or diving. Richie chose to give up diving. But we all know how ultimatums don't work, and by spring of 1995, Richie left his wife and eventually got full custody of his kids. But for John Chatterton, he kept drawing blanks on the Yoo-Hoo. Richie had often given him a great new perspective which led him to finding more artifacts, but without Richie, he didn't know what else to do. Richie one day asked him, what about the other divers? What's their plan? But John told him, Richie, no one wants to go out there anymore. And it was true. After the three deaths that had occurred in just one year, no one was itching to get out to that site. Everyone wanted to come back from their dives alive. 94, 95, and 96 all passed without any breaks in the case. But at the end of 1996, Richie was back, and John was happy that they'd soon have a plan for the Yoo-Hoo. 
While waiting for the 1997 dive season to start, they talked to the man who identified the U-853. The man had pulled a tag off that had U-853 inscribed on it. But where did he get it? John and Richie had pulled dozens of tags from the boat, but none of them had any identifying information on them. The man told him that he got it from a spare parts box located in the electric motor room. To this, John and Richie jumped out of their chairs. The electric motor room was the only room that they had yet to explore. It was blocked, but they came up with a plan to remove the blockage and get inside the room. And during the 1997 dive season, John and Richie would head out to the wreck more than four times before finally gaining access to the motor room. In order to get inside, John had to do some death-defying moves. He had to remove his tank, push it through a small opening, squeeze himself through that opening, and then reattach his tank on the other side before looking for anything that might have the U-boat's number on it. It was seriously a suicide mission, and Richie almost quit a few times. There were a hundred ways that this could kill John, but Richie knew that as his partner, he had to stay with him until the end. In August of 1997, inside the submarine, John got to the other side. He was able to get a box that was covered in decades-old silts and buildup and passed it through the opening to Richie. Richie then passed the box to another diver, who would take it to the surface while Richie waited for John to come back through the opening. But John knew that this box might not have the U-boat's identity carved into it, so he attempted to get a second box. But this one was much heavier and caused John to breathe heavy. His air was running low, so he decided to ditch the box and just leave. But problem after problem occurred. First, something large fell on John, pinning him from the waist down. It took him minutes to be able to lift this object up, but he kept us cool the entire way. Then, on the way out, he got tangled up in old wires. His pressure gauge was dipping further and further into the red. He had less than a minute of air left. He was able to get himself free, and as soon as he squeezed through the small opening of the motor room, now next to Richie, he knew that he couldn't risk sharing Richie's air. It might take too long for Richie to understand his problem, and John went to go take a breath from his regulator, but it gave him nothing. He was completely out of air. John rushed to where his extra tanks were, about a 50-foot or 15-meter swim to outside the submarine. He got there as quick as he could and took a deep, sweet breath. John knew that Richie would not be happy about this. He knew that Richie would be done after this accident. If it had been any other diver, they'd be dead. But John's ability to stay calm while being mere seconds away from death saved his life. John and Richie had been on the bottom longer they intended, which meant they now had two hours to decompress. But as they were nearing the end of their decompression, another diver was coming down to meet them. On a large slate, the diver had written, The Yuhu now has a name. It is U869. Congratulations.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. I'm your host, Alex, and if you have any questions about this week's episode, you can head over to my Instagram page at NarcosisPod, P-O-D, or my Discord server. If you want to support the podcast, there's always Patreon or sharing the podcast with a friend. The Patreon is just $3 a month or the price of one coffee, and you get access to a lot of perks such as voting on what to hear next, exclusive updates, a shout-out at the end of the next episode, and 10% off podcast merchandise. Thank you so much again for listening, and I'll see you all next week.